Hey, hey, welcome back, everyone, to another broadcast of In the Trenches. I'm your host, Tom Morcus, and today I sit down with Nick Usborne, the 2014 AWAI's Copywriter of the Year and the creator of Conversational Copywriting. And in today's conversation, we dive into this topic of conversational copywriting, which is what you might expect. It's how do you write copy that is conversational, which would lead to maybe one or two more questions, at least to start. What does that really mean, effectively speaking? And why does it matter? As in, why do I want my copy to be conversational? And so in today's conversation, we actually explore both topics. Why is conversational copywriting the future of just copywriting in general, but also just interactions online, how we engage with our customers, our clients, and future and prospective customers and clients? And how do we write in a way that engages the readers? Because if we can engage the readers... If we write copy that gets responses, that gets people replying, that gets people sharing, that gets people taking action, that's the purpose of copywriting, right? And so implementing this idea of conversational copywriting into your email sequences, into your social media strategy, into your sales page strategy, I think it's it's a, it's a something you are probably doing even if you don't know it. Uh, I think the most effective copywriters are already writing this way. And you know, chances are your favorite newsletter or something like that is written in a very conversational style. And so we kind of explore the subject. Like, I think it's pretty obvious that this is the way you need to go with your copywriting outside of specific maybe niches or spaces where it may not be appropriate or something like that. Maybe there's something to be said in people in like the, the legal space or in banking or something like that. I get it. And so I'm not saying this is like the thing that works for everybody. But I will say that certain aspects of it do work for everyone. Like, I think you could take the same approach and apply it to email. So if you're doing direct emails or direct sales in those spaces that I just mentioned, you could still make what you do a little bit more conversational and probably get better results. So I know that's a lot of like kind of broad level analysis here of the conversation to come. I will say we I tried my best to navigate the conversation in the direction of the how-to, like how do we actually apply this? And my hope is that at the end of this, you'll come away with some actionable tips and ways to implement this into your own sales funnels, into your own emails, into your own, you know, direct mail campaigns, wherever you are writing and trying to sell or eventually, uh, or where your writing will eventually lead to a sale. So I'll leave it at that. Uh, I think there's a lot of good stuff in this conversation and I'll let you be the judge of that. So without further ado, let's get to today's conversation. So Nick, the place I want to start is with your background. How did you get into copywriting? It's not a typical career path for people. So I'm always kind of curious how a copywriter emerges. Oh man, do you want the uh, do you want the long answer, the short answer, the in between answer? <laughs> I want I want the perfect answer. You want the perfect answer. Yes. All right. So I was I guess I was nineteen, and my dad politely threw me out the house. So I'm English by birth and education, and so I was in England, and uh, I'm a farm boy. Grew up on the farm, did all kinds of useless stuff. Never went to university. Generally behaved badly, and my dad very gently kind of tossed me out of the house and said, "Come back when you got a real job." So <laughs> I went and slept on the floor, actually the upstairs bathroom floor, uh, in a house in London where a friend of mine was living with about five other people. They all had jobs. I didn't have a job. I'd, I'd never had a proper job, really, like a salary job. I just had cash jobs before that. And uh, anyway, where everyone's having breakfast on a Saturday or Sunday, and and I said to one guy, I'd never met him before. I said, "What do you do?" He said, "I work in an advertising agency." And I said, "What's that?" I had no idea. I had no idea what an advertising agency was. And uh, he told me, Ben, I said, well, is it fun? And he said, heck yeah, it's a lot of fun. So this is, this is like late 1970s, all right? I'm an old dude. And so I said, fine. And they all went to work on Monday. And I took out the uh, yellow pages and looked up advertising agencies. And I wrote like a hand typed on a mechanical typewriter letters to the first 20, like A, B, and C, <laughs> like the first 20 ad agencies. I just sent off these 20 letters. And I got 
uh, three interviews and one job offer, and I took it because my dad told me not to come home till I got a job. And I and I went into this advertising agency in London off Oxford Street as a management trainee that had no idea what to do with me. And I went to all the different departments. So I went to the media department and the production department and the all the different divisions. They just wanted me to and get an idea of how the whole thing worked. And they also wanted to find out what I might be good at. Anyway, I was in the like a, a account group division. So this is the, the the people who deal with the client and deal with the creative. And I hadn't been to the creative department yet. This, that was going to be my next stop. And the account group said, okay, part of what you do is you get the brief from the client and then you take it to the creative people and they come up with some concepts. And then your job is to look at those concepts. And if they're not good enough, if the design or the copywriting isn't good enough, you got to take it back and tell them to do better. And at that point, like in my mind, I had the kind of, what the, how dare you tell the creative people if their work is good or bad? And I had this kind of, uh-huh moment. I hadn't even been to the creative department, but I thought, wow, I'm definitely on their side. So next up was the creative department. And uh, I just got stuck in as a copywriter and it turned out I was, uh, it was my thing and I was good at it and I loved it because it was the first thing I'd done in my life where people said, hey, you're good at this. And that was it. The whole thing was serendipity. It was by accident. It was just because my dad told me to go and get a proper job and I just kind of fell into it. And once I had, I just became a fan. Well, I've been a fan of copywriting for next year. I, I think it's next year is my 40th anniversary as a professional copywriter. So I was just going to ask, 40 years. Yeah, and I'm still a fanboy. So there you go. That's, that's, a, that's a long time to pursue any, any career path or any, any profession, any kind of uh, expertise in any subject. Yeah. And, and the great part is, like, I, you know, I'm so fortunate, is that I still love it. I still, when, it, when it's done right, you know, I, mean, I still love good copywriting, great copywriting. I still get great pleasure out of reading it, great pleasure out of doing it. So one thing that kind of stuck out to me was, and I know this is, you mentioned the late 70s. So that's when you actually wrote those letters and sent them in. <laughs> that's like a long lost art. It was funny because I recently interviewed somebody and I think we just recently published that interview. It was Eric Bakey, I think it was. And uh, he shared how he was in the army. And when he got out, what he did was he compiled a list of people that he would want to work for. And I think it was in the, in the context of, of copywriting or, or writing for them. And he sent handwritten letters. And that's how he booked up his, his kind of client roster for the year. And I think to myself, what, what a, maybe not a surprising thing that works, but it seems so effective. Do you still do anything like that, handwritten letters or anything? Not today. Because, I mean, I've been freelancing for most of those 40 years now. But for the first few years, I went from like one agency to another agency. And, and one of my, so the second agency I went to, I really wanted to work for those guys. And what I did for them is instead of writing a traditional letter and a kind of resume, I actually imagined how that interview might go. And I wrote the dialogue for the interview that hadn't happened yet. Like, here's what I'm going to say, and here's what you're going to say. <laughs> and I wrote the entire dialogue, this imaginary dialogue of the interview we were going to have. And so he called me up and said, come in, come in. And, and I got in because what I'd done was different. It was unexpected. And in fact, it turned out, you know, we, we had the conversation I, <laughs> we were going to have and I got the job. Uh, so, yeah, I think there's still, I think there's always space for doing something a little different. Like, like, just like a regular ask is, uh, particularly now, is so noisy out there. Just a, a regular, ordinary, expected ask for anything is uh, falls pretty much on deaf ears. I think people are too busy for that. So, give me some context in terms of like the type of copywriting you do, and whether that was for when you first got started, 
you know, and, and even today, kind of what you're doing, like maybe some of the industries or spaces you've worked in, what form did it take? Like what kind of, because copywriting is so broad. So I'm really curious yeah, to, yeah. to hear more about that. I started off doing print, print advertising, some of it business to business, some business to consumer. I did a stint where I was doing pharmaceutical advertising, did that for a while. I didn't like it much, stopped doing that. Then I got into direct mail, writing direct mail packages, which is a whole different art, that, that kind of direct response copywriting through the mail. So this is like before the web, right? And then I was, yeah, I did direct mail probably for about 10 years. And then in 1995, I wrote my first website, created my first website. And that was, I just loved that. I just loved that whole, and, and back in 1995, very different from what it is today. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're yeah. talking GeoCities or even the precursor to yeah, GeoCities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, when, I wrote, when I first wrote that uh, website, the, the developer, the coder, because it was all hand-coded, there was no tools or software for it. We were trying to think, with, there was like this brand new browser that had just come out called Netscape. And we thought, wow, should we write this optimized for Netscape or for Mosaic, which was the browser before Netscape. So this is like right in the early days. Anyway, then by 19, at the end of 1997, I made like a business decision, which was kind of crazy. And I said, right, as of January the 1st, 1998, I'm never going to write print again. I'm only going to write for the web because I loved it. And that's exactly what I've done. I haven't written anything for print since January the 1st, 1998. And again, back then were like fun times, not always easy times because no one really knew what they were doing, but uh, certainly fun times. So I've been writing for the web ever since. I've been uh, writing for hey, big companies, huge companies, organizations and mid-sized and small companies. I don't mind, you know, fun, interesting work and uh, I'll, I'll do it. That said, in recent years, I've got much more into kind of teaching and training. Uh, and uh, I mean, I started that, in fact, at the corporate level I was doing. Because again, in the, in the late 90s, early 2000s, companies had no ideas that they'd bring me in to do like a two or three day training for their web group on how to write for the web. And then I sort of transferred that training into, hey, I wonder if I can turn this into training for individuals, individual copywriters, like maybe freelance copywriters rather than people within corporations. And so I've done that. So today, most of my time is, you know, I do very little client work anymore except for kind of friends and people I've kept up with. Uh, mostly I'm doing training and teaching now. Yeah. So when you were doing the work with clients and for companies, and we'll get into the education piece here soon, I'm curious the types of work you were writing what, or, or, or the media. Well, I understand the medium, but uh, digital specifically. Were you doing like sales pages? Were you doing like advertorials? What, were, what was the kind of stuff you were writing? Well... I was doing a lot of, um, not, I mean, I've done it. I've done the long form online sales page, but that certainly wasn't for the kind of corporate market that I was working with. I was doing much more like usability issues, like how to create uh, like an information pathway from the homepage, you know, two or three clicks down to what people were really looking for. So companies would hire me to write the kind of top level of organize and write the top level of their website, like the top 30 or 40 or 50 pages. So it, it was a lot of it was about usability. A lot of it was about user experience, about optimization of the experience, getting people where they wanted to be faster. So in part, it was copy. You know, I, I guess when we think about copywriting, we often think of, oh, copywriting is sales writing. And that's what I used to do offline. But online, I found it 
much more interesting is, is that it, it does, it ties in with usability, it ties in with the kind of whole user experience is how do you help people get to where they want to be? How do you use the right language to help them find what they want, to let them know they're in the right place? And then how do you use, find the right language so that they kind of stay with you and listen to you so that you can help them achieve whatever it is they want to achieve? So a lot of my writing experience on the business side and on the teaching side is being, hey, less emphasis on just shouting at people and more emphasis on helping people find what it is they actually want. So take me through that process. Like, I'm, I'm curious, and I believe you cover this more in depth in your course, Conversational Copywriting. And so we can touch on that. But I'm, I'm kind of curious right. about the uh, fundamentals of what you call conversational copywriting and how it might differ from whatever somebody's maybe perception of copywriting is. All right. So, so like I say, I, th- I think people's kind of base understanding of copywriting is Oh, that's sales writing, that's sales stuff. So back in the day before the web, when I was doing direct mail, I was working through traditional media, like direct mail and print, and, and my colleagues were writing stuff for TV and radio. So these are all one-way broadcast media. You're basically presenting an ad at an audience. You know, if you're watching a TV commercial, you can't create a commercial back at the TV. You can't interact with that medium. It's one-way broadcast. It's, it's broadcasting at the audience. So that that's the kind of old school. When the web came along, what really excited me about the web was that, hang on, this isn't a one-way medium. This isn't even a two-way medium. This is a multi-way medium where everyone gets to participate. So that if you as a business promotes to me through the web, I can respond. I can write to you. Uh, I, can, I can respond to you. I can interact with you through social media. I can, hey, as a business, maybe you create videos for YouTube. Hey, I can do that too as an individual. You've got a blog. Hey, funny, I got a blog too. I'm your customer, but I also have a blog. So it's this kind of democratization of the medium where that distinction between, you know, who, who's the creator? It used to be the broadcaster was the creator. Now the recipient may well also be a creator, even if it's only a Facebook page or an Instagram account or, or, or whatever. We're all participants in this. And, and the thing that really excited me and still excites me is, okay, if that's the case, If we're no longer just broadcasting a message at a static audience who is unable to participate like TV or radio or print, but we're actually talking to an audience that can interact with us, shouldn't the language change? Shouldn't the whole mindset change where we're no longer selling at an audience, but we're seeking ways to engage with that audience? So just just stop me whenever you want, because I get into a rant on this kind of stuff. But take, take social media. Like most companies do social media incredibly badly because even after all these years, they still treat it as a broadcast medium. So you'll go to a, a company's Facebook page and it's just, hey, here's our latest offer. Here's our latest deal. Buy this now. Uh, check out our new launch. Check out our... It's, it's just broadcasting as if it were TV. And in the worst cases, you look, you scroll down through the Facebook page. There is no interaction. There's nothing in the comment stream. Maybe once upon a time, people tried to interact with that company by adding comments, but they discovered that the company never bothered to respond. So there's no interaction. It's just, they're just treating it like a one-way medium. And, and a lot of companies do that. So that, that, that's where a business misunderstands the nature of this medium and the opportunity to engage with an audience. And when, if you want to engage with an audience, you can't use that old sales language. You have to, hey, like I say, like you said, like I say, it has to be more conversational in tone, as if I were talking to you across my kitchen table with a cup of coffee. 
you know, it, this is a multi-way medium. We can interact. So I should talk to you in that conversational tone as if we are equals in an equal space, which we are online. You mentioned engagement, which is a word that I hear people throw around. I use it too in certain contexts. And I do believe that engagement, although maybe a nebulous concept, is important. My right. question for you is, uh, what, what type of engagement, I guess, are you talking about? How do we then craft copy to increase engagement? And then I guess maybe this is a two or three part question would be, uh, how do you know that engagement actually you know, improves the bottom line, so to speak? Right. So uh, all kinds of questions kind of bundled up in there. So all right. So the, one, one of the first things I'll say is, and remind me of your question, because I'll forget by the time I've answered part of it. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah, of course. So Zappos before and, and perhaps after they were purchased by Amazon, they sell shoes, right? Total, total commodity. Total. I mean, why on earth would an online shoe company win? Uh, win, you know, because it's just it's shoes. You can buy shoes anywhere. The way they won was by interacting with their audience, engaging with the audience. So, what happened with the boss of Zappos, and I forget his name, is he said to his customer service people, "Look, I know the way you're used to working is that you are paid basically to handle as many customer service calls as you can per hour." And you could perhaps get a bonus for handling more because that's how you do it without spending too much money. And what he said is, we're going to turn that around. I want you to spend as long as it takes with each individual customer when that customer service call comes in. And if it takes half an hour to sell a pair of sneakers to make that buyer happy, spend half an hour. So totally kind of contradictory to how it's meant to be. But that's engagement. That is engagement with the audience. And what happened then is... All of those customers, because you, 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 only, you only go to customer service if you're desperate, because you know it's usually a miserable experience. So all of these people started off unhappy. They had an amazing experience with the customer service person. They just couldn't believe how good it was. They bought the shoes. What do they do next? They go to social media. They tell all their friends how amazing it is. So, so that's true actual engagement. I think, who is it? The, uh, I'm trying to think of the mattress company. It's the one with the, the ghost. What's the ghost's name? Oh, man. Casper? Casper. Right. So in the early days of the Casper mattress, and I don't think it's the same now. From what I understand, the, the CEO or the, the founder of, of Casper, he reckoned at some point that he'd probably interacted by text with at least 50% of his buyers. Like, so, so the CEO was available to you if you wanted to buy a mattress. Extraordinary. So it's, these are real life examples of true engagement. Most companies hate this because it sounds like spending money. And in fact, most companies, when they talk about engagement, they're actually talking about technology. Like, is there a software tool we can use to approximate the experience of, of engagement? And that's not really engagement at all, is it? So how do I measure engagement? I measure engagement. Like if, if, if I send out a promotional email, if I get someone writing me back saying, hey, I loved your email. Thank you so much. That I've engaged with that person, right? I mean, who replies to a, a promotional email? If somebody does, it means you've touched them. You've really, truly reached them. And they view you as a person that they can reach back to and interact. So to my mind, engagement is, yes, you can use technology, you can use automation to engage, to enhance and amplify engagement. But I don't think it's ever real or true or really as powerful as it can be unless you are actually engaging. And that is, 
I, I don't think you need to speak to everyone. If you're available to speak to people, that's wonderful. People appreciate that. But the language you use is so telling. I don't know if you, you, you're familiar with uh, marketing profs. I don't know if I am. Maybe you can elaborate on that a little bit. All right. So marketingprofs.com, it's basically a marketing site. It's like marketing professionals. So uh, I think mainly it's uh, business to business. And one of the key people there is Anne Handley. And Anne Handley, she's the chief content officer at Marketing Profs and has been for a very long time now. And she the way she writes is extraordinary because not, not only for Marketing Profs, but she has her own newsletter. You can do a search for Anne Handley and you'll find it. I think it's annehandley.com. Just sign up for her newsletter as a, as a masterclass in how to write because when you read her emails, when she sends out her newsletter, it honest to goodness feels like you just got an email from a close friend. I mean, you just feel that. And it's because, it, first of all, she's a consummate writer. She's a very, very good writer. But also she means it. She feels it. She, wa- you know, she wants that level of engagement. And I think one of the things that happens with businesses right now is, is there's so much automation, there's so much technology, there's so many tips and tricks on, you know, here the 10 ways to tip your customer, your prospects over, you know, to, to buying. It's tips and tricks plus automation. And you end up with actually something that is not conversational and very impersonal. And you kind of have to make up for that with massive numbers and massive numbers of emails pushing and pushing and pushing. Whereas my point of view is, you know what, if just relax a bit and engage with people in a more open, authentic and conversational way, and then they're going to be more likely to buy. And not only that, but they're going to stay with you longer. Their lifetime value is going to be way higher. And they're far more likely to spread the word among their colleagues and friends and family and peers. So one thing that makes me nervous when I hear something like this, and maybe for those who are listening too, is it's like, oh man, now I have to get on Twitter. I have to get on Facebook. I got to start a page and a group and I got to start, you know, build a community. And it's like, especially for those individuals who are professionals who are listening to this or solopreneurs or people who are doing like a side hustle, it's like, where do I invest my time and energy? And so I'm curious if you have any suggestions or feedback or how somebody could approach that because I think that's the immediate worry is like, well, maybe the last thing I want to do or last, some, last thing somebody wants to do is listening to this is like, <laughs> get on social media, maybe just blanket. But uh, let's say they are in social media. It's like, well, the last thing I want to be doing is be you know, tweeting and commenting all day long. Like, How, how do I distinguish between that as a, a critical aspect of my business? And I, I say, uh, how do I maybe um, decide how much time I invest in that. How does that, how does that break down? Like, how do we, I guess, how do we make that practical? Well, it's a good point and it's a, and it's a really valid point. So I think, I think the first thing is to say, you know what, I'm going to, yes, I'm going to try to engage with my audience. I'm trying to be, I, I want to be more available and I definitely want to write in a more transparent, open and conversational style. Um, actually, one thing, and I'm going to come back to your question and remind mm-hmm. me if it is, what it is if, if I forget, is when I talk about conversational selling or conversational copywriting, people always, a lot of people say to me, they push back and say, yeah, Nick, but it doesn't work as well as traditional broadcast sales copywriting. And Nick, you should know better because you've done that stuff. You've done direct response copywriting. You know that stuff is the way to go. Uh, and I push back at that and say, well, no, I don't know that. And yes, I have done. I have sat on both sides of the fence. And when I talk about conversational copywriting, I'm not saying sell less. 
I'm not saying don't sell as well. I'm just saying sell differently. Because if you think about it, conversation is, is an intrinsically persuasive medium. Like, hey, I got kids. And as they grew up, they're all trying to persuade me, hey, I want this pair of sneakers. I want this t-shirt. I want this computer. And they're talking to me and they're trying to persuade me and they're doing it by conversation. Uh, if you have a significant other and you're saying, hey, where are we going to go on vacation? She wants to go one place. You want to go to the other place. You're going to have a conversation and you're both going to try and sell each other. Wherever, like all day long, we are selling through conversation and, and we can be super persuasive when we get passionate about something. Like, you know, a kid can be incredibly passionate, incredibly persuasive when she wants to stay up, you know, later than usual to watch a particular movie or play a game or be on the phone with their friends, whatever. I mean, conversation is incredibly persuasive when you do it well. So no, I, I don't think it's second rate. Going back to what you said about where you're going to spend your time, that's a great question because particularly social media can be a total time sink and you can end up spending a lot of time for very little return. So what I do is I I try different things and I've, like, I've had different businesses over the years. And for some of them, YouTube was actually absolutely the best place for me to spend my time and engage with people. And I didn't bother with Twitter. I didn't bother with Facebook because YouTube was clearly where my audience wanted to be for that business. For myself today, Facebook works better for me than Twitter. It works better for me than YouTube. So that's where I devote my time is for Facebook. So basically, I, I'm going to spend my time where my audience wants to be, where they want to interact with me. I don't make the choice. I, I get out there in different places uh, and I'll try all kinds of stuff. Hey, for conversational copywriting, I have an Instagram account. Is it a great source of prospects and building relationships? Not really. So I don't spend much time there. I spend much more time on Facebook because people are much more interested in interacting with me on Facebook. So part of it, it sounds like, is choosing the right platform to, to some degree. And I, not that I want to get wrapped up in that, not to, you know, and I know that's not the intention of what you're saying per se, like to get to fix it on like the tools or the medium. But I think there's something about this conversational copywriting, kind of what you're describing to me is, well, a big piece of this then is maybe you don't have to be on everything. Number one. Number two, right. well, you do need to be on some sort of platform where there is uh, some level of engagement. Maybe we can talk about different ways you could do that. It doesn't, maybe it doesn't even have to be social media, but it sounds like that's one of the things you've mentioned yeah. and brought up. And yeah, it could be blogging. Right. I mean, basically, I'm saying go where your audience wants to be and go where your audience wants to interact. Uh, you give them the choices, but you let them choose. Like, have a look, have a look at the activity. And like I say, that's what I do. I say, where, where does my audience want to interact with me most? And that's where I put in the time. So coming back, when you say, oh, solopreneurs and stuff, they're worried about spending time. I, I'm assuming that, and, and I probably shouldn't assume because really when I say I'm assuming I'm just talking about myself, but but I'm assuming that every solopreneur listening is passionate about what he or she is trying to share with the world. And if you're passionate about what it is you're involved with and selling, then I'm assuming you want to get the world, word out. And I'm assuming that you can talk about it and write about it at length. Um, and that comes into content creation. So, you know, I have for conversational copywriting, I, ha I have a blog uh, and I write one or two posts each week. I do some interview posts as well sometimes, but a minimum of one new post a week. And I'm on Facebook pretty much every day. And I'm on Twitter maybe two or three times a week. Like I got stuff to say, I got stuff to share. So I want to get out there. I, I want to find different places where I can interact and find my audience. 
hey, I'm, I'm talking to you now. I, I, I want to reach people with this. And I'm hoping and assuming that most solopreneurs have that kind of itch, that burn inside that, yeah, I want the, the people who could benefit from what I've got to share. I want to reach them. I want to find them. Let me ask you this. When I, if I were to go this path too and kind of open up these, these new avenues, because I definitely, I got my start blocking and I did find that the comment section was really helpful for me as a young writer, young blogger when I first got it started, um, especially when I was like, actually scared to publish online, which is a whole another story. But it was really useful to actually get feedback and have conversations there. So I, I, I still blog. The podcast has been great because while it's not a, it's not a platform for engagement in this context, but it's, it has been a great way for me to engage with you know, really smart people and bring on really great intellectuals and thought leaders and experts and then share that with my audience. Though I don't really have conversations around my podcast episodes on my website, it has been a great medium for at least teaching and sharing ideas. But when I look at something like this with blogging, podcasting, even YouTube, I guess I'm wondering like, how do you encourage dialogue? Okay. So how do you like create something and well, I suppose create that engagement. You mentioned, I think in your course, you talk about maybe like questions that you can lead with and things like that. But maybe yeah. take, take, take us down to like the, the ground level here, the high resolution view. What does it take to create that conversation? What are some maybe tropes or some, uh, some constructs we can use to facilitate that? All right. So, so there, there are two things here. First, in terms of encouraging conversation and interaction with your audience. Yeah, just ask questions. I'll do it with surveys or a poll. I'll do it like it, when, I, when I send out like a weekly update to people who are interested in conversational copywriting, I almost always close with, I always have my email address before I sign off. I may have a general invitation to, hey, if you've got any questions, email me. You know, just right now, click this and let me know. I might have a specific question, like I've talked about something in the email. I say, hey, what do you think? Let me know what you think. So I just make myself available uh, and encourage feedback. If you ask people, there, there are business people I've seen, like some of the companies where I used to work with, where you know, on a mid-sized company, the, the CEO would write uh, an email and underneath it would have, here's my phone number, my direct line, call me. That is, almost nobody does, but the fact that it's there says, I am open to engaging with you. I'm available to you. And that, that, that just changes everything. It's no longer just some big bully of a company promoting at you. The, the, the founder of the company is saying, hey, talk to me. Is there any uh, negative side effect to something like that where not everybody maybe should do something like that? And what, what I'm thinking of when I ask that question is specifically, does it reduce scarcity and access to you in a way that could be that could devalue you or your platform, especially if we're talking, say, thought leaders and people who are like creating content and have that kind of like name and personality around them. And I, I say that because I'm actually really accessible. People email me, I respond back probably 95% of the time. Five, that 5% is like hate mail right. that I usually ignore or something <laughs> like that, right? And then, but, but, and I see people like Seth Godin, who I'm a big fan of, and he always replies to emails. Like, I think I've asked him, I've probably gotten like, you know, every email I think I've ever sent him, he's replied back to, just right. of course, wild. But then there's other people, and you could just pick any name out of a hat, big, big name, celebrity type thought leaders and stuff like that, who don't even like manage their own email account, don't really respond to things personally. Right. Thoughts on that? Like, is there a distinction we should make? Like, yes, it's good to open up the phone lines, or yes, it's good to make yourself available, or cases where maybe it's not so, and maybe it's not not a good business decision. I don't know the answer. In, in, in a sense, like you've answered it yourself, I think, right. <laughs> is that if you if you take the Seth Godin route, there's right. just just immediately now you're the way you think of Seth Godin when you know right. 
it, it just changes everything. And I, and I personally, like, so I know, like, because I started so early, I know a lot of people who were kind of in the early days of online marketing in the late, mid, mid to late 90s and early 2000s. And yeah, sometimes I'll watch. And, and some of those people now are like, they're either too busy to answer my emails or like you say, they've outsourced their email to some kind of manager or assistant. And it's like, I just sit back and think, huh, that's a shame. I remember when we used to hang out and it's like, are they too busy or too self-important or, or what is it? So there tend to be kind of those negative thoughts floating around. Whereas you get somebody like, hey, if Seth Godin can do it, anyone can do it if they choose to, right? Right. I mean, literally, yeah, that's kind of what I've always thought, actually. Being yeah. as, as he was somebody who I read really early on that really convinced me like, okay, right. I need to start writing. I need to start so, so yeah. I, try, I try really, really hard to reply to all of me because I'll, I'll get emails from anyone and everyone, whether, it, you know, I'm like, hey, I corresponded with Seth Godin. So, you know, if I get an email from him, for sure, I'm going to open it. But I also try to open it, open the email from the student of my course who would, you know, maybe doesn't have the money right now or whatever. And they want to ask me a question. You know, I'll try to answer that too, because it's, hey, in a sense, it's almost like a karma thing. And, and, and it spreads that, that kind of stuff. You, you build a reputation like that. But one, one thing I wanted to say is that, that the whole idea, the concept of conversational copywriting isn't about just, all, I mean, it can be and should be about actually having conversations, but it's about how you write your sales materials where, it, you know, writing a sales page or writing a sequence of promotional emails. So you're not actually trying to get into real conversation, but you're writing in a conversational tone and style, which just in and of itself is disarming. It's like people, it's like a relief, like, oh God, he's not, you know, he's not shouting at me. He's not pushing at me. He's not throwing you know, tips and techniques at me, like this person is talking to me like I'm a real valuable person. So it's just the, the style, the conversational style of writing as if you were talking one-on-one -on -one with someone. When, when you write sales material like that, it can be super persuasive. Like I said, conversation can be incredibly persuasive, but it doesn't trigger all those negative feelings and that kind of defensive posture you sometimes get when you're being sold out too hard. I, I'm, I'm sure you've felt it yourself, and I feel it. I'm sure we all feel it, of when a, a marketer is selling at us, and there's almost that moment of, hey, that was almost like a step too far. You're pushing too hard, like back off. Like you had me a minute ago, and now all of a sudden, I feel like I'm backed in the corner by a used car salesperson. Yeah, man, it's a it's a tough uh, tough biz uh, business <laughs> and writing and copywriting. Let me ask you this real quick before we get kind of wrap up the conversation. What's your perspective on storytelling and and how important it is, or or maybe not in your your case when it comes to say this conversational copywriting and, and how you do copy? I, I think storytelling can be extremely powerful. I think it can be part and parcel of conversational copywriting of where you share experiences and you tell stories and share stories. Hey, one of, one of my favorite examples, I guess, and it's almost, this is like a half story, half conversational. There's a, in Dublin, there's a coffee shop and the name of the coffee shop is I'll meet you in the morning. That's the name of the coffee shop. I'll meet you in the morning. Uh, I believe that's it. It's very close. If it's not exactly that, it's very close to that. I'll meet you in the morning. And it's like, you look at it and you think, oh man, because it, it, it evokes like, where does that come from? What was this? Who's having this? Who's saying it to whom? Like, is this something somebody said the night before in a bar? I'll meet you in the morning. Or it, it's like story. It's like conversation. And, and it's just the name of a coffee shop. And I love stuff where the writer leaves space for the reader to participate. 
and story is great with that. Now, the the only thing I would say about story is I think stories are because stories are very emotionally engaging when they're done well, and they allow the reader to enter into the conversation. And this is why sometimes people prefer books to movies. With a movie, everything is set out, you know, the exact dialogue, here's the image, here's the character, here's what happens. In a book, you can enter into it yourself. You, you, have, you come up with your own ideas of exactly what the hero or heroine looks like, because it's not like a movie, you don't have a picture. So you participate in that storytelling. And, and that, I think, is incredibly powerful. It's very, it's very engaging. So yeah, if you can use story, genuine stories, in, in how you sell that absolutely fits in with the conversational approach and, it, and is very, very engaging uh, in and of itself. The only caution is don't make it up. So I don't know about you, but occasionally I will get a, an email or a series of emails, or, which I would call like bogus conversational, that false conversational. So it'll be an email saying, hey, Nick, or Nick, hey, uh, my wife and I were walking back from the beach this morning and I thought of you, all right? And you look at it and you say, that's complete bullshit. That's not true at all. That's a pack of lies. He wasn't walking back from the beach this morning decided, thinking of me and then wrote this email like, mm. and, and our, it's not true. And so there's a lot of email marketing and uh, marketing out there that is kind of falsely conversational. It's, oh, hey, buddy. It's, it's pretending to be your buddy, pretending to be your friend, but it's not. And you get a lot of stories that are told where it's, it's bullshit. It's not true. And people, people are smarter than marketers think. I mean, that's why people install ad blockers. Yeah, they're, they're fed up with all that nonsense in their browsers. Let, let, I mean, let me ask you this. Hundreds of millions of people have installed ad blockers. Yeah. Yeah, and, and exactly. But what, that one of the things you said that made me think of something, and it was is this idea is like, well, what is a conversation anyway? It's an interaction between two people. But there's a specific, I think, uh, aspect of a conversation maybe that, that we haven't really brought up here. It's that there has to be, it's not just about like talking about a subject or even two people talking back and forth because that doesn't have to necessarily be a conversation. I think when we think about what a conversation is, there's, it's uh, maybe to to some degree, it's like a duel of ideas. And so there has to be some sort of conflict, conflict in the idea or potential conflict. And, and so that's where opinions come in and that's where a conversation forms. I, I'm just, just talking out loud here, kind of like my flow of thoughts here. I don't, know if, I don't know if that's how you perceive a conversation, but that's kind of how I look at it. And so I guess I'm wondering if I'm not making being too presumptuous here, how important it is when we create content that there is some sort of you know, line that's drawn so that a conversation could ensue. The inclusion of, of kind of conflict certainly is part of storytelling, uh, almost always part of storytelling. I'm not sure it has to be in conversation. So I don't know about you, but like I, a few conversations in my life, I'll sit down with someone and you start talking and then there's not conflict. It's like, it's like you and I will be talking and I'll say, hey, if, if it's a bad conversation, I, I won't let you get a word in edgeways because I'm much more interested in just Sharing, pushing my point of view. I'm not really listening. I'm just waiting for an opening. So, you know, that's the bad maybe, conversation. Maybe conflict is the wrong word. Maybe challenge. There has to be some sort of, because I think it could be, I don't. But it, but it, but it can be very positive. Yeah. Let's say you and I are having a conversation and, I, and, I, and you say something that is kind of interesting and, I, and I'm tempted to jump in. But if I'm a good conversationalist, I say, well, hey, Tom, what do, what do you mean by that? Expand on that. And when I invite you to expand on it, maybe it's going to take you places that you hadn't quite explored before. So if I'm a good conversationalist, my, it's a bit like improv. <laughs> my, my role 
is to make you better, to think deeper, to enrich your thinking. So that the conversation isn't a kind of zero something of you and me just talking at each other. We're actually help each other to explore. So I, I can think of conversations in my life where like two, three hours have passed and it's like you look at your watch and it's like, oh my God, where did the time go? But you've almost like, I think a conversation can be a deeply immersive and creative process mm. between people. Now, I'm getting weird now because I'm getting a kind of a little away from copywriting. But there's a wonderful quote from a, a poet called David White, where he said, he was talking about, in fact, his relationship with his son. And he was talking about how important conversation was to his relationship with the son, his son. And he suddenly said, that's not it. He said, the conversation is the relationship. Mm -hmm. That, that interest. So, so I think conversation so I, I get weird because I'm always thinking about this, but but I think it is so fundamental to our relationships that to me, that is its kind of superpower when it comes to marketing and particularly where people want to do marketing. They want to be persuasive. They want people to buy their stuff, but they don't want to be that pushy person. They don't want to be that hard selling dude. They, they want to do it in a way that feels comfortable. And, and, and I think conversation opens the door to that is, is a kind of a kind of secret way to be super persuasive but in a very disarming and friendly and relationship building way i love it well i think that's as good a point as any to wrap up here so before we go though i want to make sure that people have the floor to, to learn more about this maybe continue the conversation with you nick so where should people head to learn more about you or check out what you do sure they can go to conversationalcopywriting.com and more specifically, they can go to conversationalcopywriting.com forward slash trenches. And if they go there, there's a there's just some downloads there. There's a, there's a PDF people can download. There's a series of three short videos I've put together as a kind of introduction to conversational copywriting. So that's probably the best place to take the next step. If, if, if this has inspired anyone, if anyone is thinking, wow, I'd like to learn more about that, then that'd be conversationalcopywriting.com forward slash trenches. And as you know, walking the talk, anyone wants to just approach me directly, just write to me at nick at conversationalcopywriting.com. Uh, I don't share my phone number because I hate the phone. Uh, I've always hated the phone. Most of the time I unplug the phone. <laughs> I'm the same way. I'm, I'm doing something and the phone rings and it's like, really? Is that phone ringing more important? I, my concentration has just been completely busted. I spent two hours on this. So I just turn the phone off and check for messages at the end of the day. So if you want to reach me, uh, nick at conversationalcopywriting.com anytime. And like I say, 90% of the time, I, I will respond to you in 24 hours. If I don't, uh, wait another 24 hours and then remind me because I'm not ignoring you, but just sometimes things slip below the fold and I, and I miss them. I love it. Well, Nick, we will make sure we have a lot of the stuff drafted up in the show notes as well. And I just want to say thank you so much for being on In the Trenches. It was a pleasure having you. Oh, likewise. I, uh, you've been great. I love the questions and I love talking about this stuff. Are you trying to grow your online business, but struggling to get new customers consistently and predictably? Are you tired of working nonstop only to see your income plateau? Are you ready to step off the hustle hamster wheel, as I call it, and step onto a path of predictable profit that you can scale as much or as little as you want? Don't worry, you're not alone. I've been there. When I first got started, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. So I started reading blogs and listening to podcasts by people I respected and wanted to learn from. I slowly but surely put their recommendations into practice. But because I wanted to do it all myself, maybe you, you're something like that, right? And you love to do, do it by yourself, learn through trial and error. Well, bottom line is it took forever. Results were unpredictable when I was first getting started. I wasn't sure where to spend my time, money, and energy. And shiny penny syndrome 
got the best of me on more than one occasion. For many entrepreneurs, the amount I sacrificed, working literally nonstop in some cases in my spare time, and 12 and 14-hour days routinely after going full-time, combined with the endless fog of war, aka that uncertainty that I had to deal with at all times because I was going it alone, I think that would have been enough for most entrepreneurs to throw in the towel. But I was persistent, focused, and I stayed humble. Day after day, I worked to grow the traffic to my website, increase my list of subscribers, and generate a healthy living for my eBooks, eCourses, and other digital products. At least that was the goal. But maybe more important than the work was that I paid attention to what I was doing, including what worked and what didn't. Eventually, I discovered a predictable pattern of growth. And so what I did was I just doubled down on those things, and I scrapped or sidelined the other things that weren't working so well. Finally, two years after resigning my commission as a captain in the army and going full-time on my online business front with my blog, with my podcast, etc., I replaced my income with digital product income. Two years. And so if that's where it stopped, I would have been happy with it. I would have been happy with the results. I wouldn't have complained. I would have been very content just replacing my income. But the bottom line is it was so much work. I wanted to you know, see if it could go somewhere else, right? So I just kept doing what I was doing, but better, faster, and more effectively. Again, just kind of applying the same system that I discovered uh, from seeing these patterns emerge, right? So I implemented it. I kept doing it. And eventually, replacing my income turned into doubling my income. And then that turned into a little bit more and a little bit more. But not just that, it afforded me the freedom to dictate my day and also choose the projects I want to work on, on the schedule and on the timeline I want, and to work with the people I want to work with. And to me, that's like a whole new level of freedom, especially coming from the military. It's something I've never really had that level of complete autonomy until I became my own boss. I started my own business. And until ultimately, until it became profitable enough for me to start to take a step back and actually reap the rewards of it. Because it's not all just working, working, working. And I do believe it's hard work. And I'll always say that nothing about doing this stuff is easy. But at the same time, you've got to reap the rewards at some point and take some of that profit, uh, even if you're just reinvesting it into new assets and things like that. Bottom line is, it can't just be work, right? Entrepreneurship and business is about that result that occurs, the value you've created and the profit, that that piece of value that you've captured, okay? And you want to be able to reap the rewards of that profit, of that value, that little sliver of value that you get to capture, that you get to net, right? You want to be able to take advantage of that. Otherwise, you know, the entrepreneurship game really does become just a grind. And, and for, I think, a lot of entrepreneurs, unfortunately, it becomes meaningless, and that's when they quit. Well, for me, I love this stuff. I really, truly do. I mean, it is my thing. And so that's why I didn't just stop where I was at. I've stayed committed to learning everything I can about all aspects of this online business world and this online marketing world. And I do this through real-world application. In other words, I'm currently growing several online businesses And I'm always putting my ideas to the test in real time with my own money, with my own time and energy, oftentimes with employees, you know, a lot of some, some stuff more advanced, some stuff more simple, but, you know, so varying levels of complexity and again, in different spaces, different niches. And I can say, you know, bottom line, I've always loved the startup hustle, but I got to say, it's nice to now be in a position where I can get big results with much less effort. Thanks to having built the foundation of my business the right way. And again, I did it all through trial and error, but I don't think that that's the way that everyone needs to do it. And in fact, looking back on it, if I had to redo it, I don't know if I would. It was so difficult to just go it alone and try to figure everything out by myself. So one of the things I've tried to do is give back with this podcast, with my blog, and with my newsletter. 
But maybe even more rewarding than any of this stuff, while I've enjoyed all of it, I think the thing that I'm enjoying the most, that I find most engaging and rewarding is the premium business mastermind and coaching program I run called 100K Academy. Inside 100K Academy, I help ambitious entrepreneurs who are very driven and excited to be doing what they're doing. I help them grow their reach, their influence, and their profit using my proprietary marketing system. That's the same one I use to scale my own online businesses from zero to multiple six figures and beyond. And the same system I use to help my clients reach the New York Times, Wall Street Journal bestseller list, set Kickstarter funding records, and create viral product launches that have turned into predictable revenue streams. So lots and lots of case studies that you can find at tommorcus.com. If you're curious, just go to tommorcus.com slash about, and that'll get you started. Most importantly, this system is one that 100K Academy members and alumni have used to achieve tremendous results, like Alexa, who used it to have her most profitable year ever, or Tina, who used it to make five figures from a sales funnel that she can now replicate and scale, and that's exactly what she's doing, or Carrie, who made over $75,000 in just seven days. And the crazy part about his story was that his online business was actually a side hustle up until that first profitable launch, which he has then been able to grow and scale. And he subsequently quit his job following that very successful week. And I think that that has been just a game changer for Carrie and the life he's living and the work he gets to do and the impact he gets to make on the world because of the great work he's doing now, because he was able to figure out a system that would get him the targeted traffic, the subscribers, the sales to grow a profitable online business. Bottom line, if you want to grow your online business from six to seven figures, but you flatlined or you're struggling, or you just want to be told what to do and when to do it and in what order, right? And you want a system that is predictable and scalable and isn't just you know another shiny penny, but actually will fit right into your business. It plugs in and is something that you can truly grow. I want you to go to tommorcus.com slash academy. That's tommorcus.com slash academy. Academy is spelled A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. Go to tommorcus.com slash academy, and you'll find a page on my website with more details about 100K Academy, the business mastermind coaching program I run, as well as instructions on what to do next. Again, that's tommorcus.com slash academy. And if you're serious about growing your reach, influence, and profit, just follow the instructions and we'll be in touch, okay? Again, tommorcus.com slash academy. Go ahead and head over there now. That's it for today. Stay frosty.